Well, Christmas is over, which you know. New Year's, uh, it is still a new year, but New Year's is over, but guess what? We are still celebrating, right? Uh, the church is kind of always celebrating, even in the midst of our seasons of penitence and, and lament for our sin, there's still a ring of celebration. And um, so Epiphany is here. We're celebrating the season of Epiphany. And this is a time to recall and to celebrate particular revealings, revelations, you might say, manifestations of or insights into who Jesus was and is. Friday, of course, was the actual feast day of the Epiphany, always January 6th, and that's when we celebrate the visit of the Magi or the wise men, if you prefer, or the three kings, if the actual details of history don't really matter to you so much. It's okay. There were three gifts. We just don't know that there were three kings. Um, but what matters actually is, uh, you know, likely before Jesus could even walk, before he could even talk, he was revealed not just to Israel, but to foreigners from far away, renowned people known to have staggering wealth and significant influence in political affairs in the ancient Near East. This is who came. And they were, you might say, the exact social opposites of local illiterate hillbilly shepherds but who were invited first. And as it turned out, these kingmakers, you might call them, uh, they, they studied the night skies and they followed some prophetic breadcrumbs to Bethlehem to find Jesus, but they didn't leverage their power, they didn't leverage their wealth to proclaim Jesus an instant royal. They seemed to understand something way more profound and way more patient about what God was doing, what was happening in the earth. They arrived to the Holy Family, Discreetly, they departed carefully. And while there, what did they do? It's important. Apparently, they didn't size Jesus and his family up, you know, for evidence of majesty, which would have been useful if this is to be this king of kings. They didn't devise a plan for his ascendance, and they didn't drop some self-important magi advice on him either. At least we don't see that they did. What we do know they did is they bowed. They gave lavish, meaningful gifts. They worshipped. So we rightly acknowledge that this visit as, uh, is evidence of the reach of the gospel to Gentiles. But there's more here. Right at the beginning of the Messianic era, right at Jesus' infancy, we get a glimpse of the end to which this era will lead. It was a prophetic glimpse of the destiny of the whole world. How so? Because all powers will finally yield to the Lord of heaven, to a sacrificial and self-giving, humble king who actually loves the world and its people and doesn't just want to rule them. Imagine that. I think we need some of that up in this world right now. A whole lot of it. The most developed and the most prosperous nations in our world, including ours, who are just kind of reeking of our civilization and of technology and other things, we still just seem to be groaning under the burden of power. We seem to be creasing under the weight of leadership. We're not very good at it. And if we, the church, were the kinds of people who wring our hands, we might feel that no one is really even at the wheel of this thing. Right? I mean, apparently computers and robots are, in, are on the verge of developing consciousness, so maybe they'll do a better job than we will. I've got to stop 
reading about this stuff, and you probably do too, right? Whew! Don't send me any articles. No, you can send a few. It'd be great. Um, so, listen, the Magi, they arrive not at this ultimate pinnacle of Jesus' divine resurrected power. But when do they arrive? They arrive at the moment of his shocking humility and helplessness in a body just like the kids back there in the nursery. And so what you, you might do is you might call them kind of early adopters of the bigger picture. Or, you know, what Paul calls, you know, in Ephesians 1, he calls the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. They had a sense of this, a glimpse of this. And that's what we glimpse again on Epiphany Day. And depending on which uh, of the three years of assigned readings that we're in, that's how we roll. We have three years of readings. We call the lectionary. We happen to be in year A. Depending on where we are in that, we, we revisit Jesus' first miracle at Cana. We revisit the calling of his disciples and up to 10 other important events in the early ministry of Jesus. This year, we only have seven Sundays because Easter is a little earlier, right? So we have seven Sundays between now and Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. So there is a super fast little church calendar lesson for you. Probably not all that helpful. But nonetheless, seven Sundays when we're getting these glimpses. We always, always, every year, we include the revelation of Jesus at his baptism. When the heavens open, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a proclamation from heaven resounds. This day um, has also throughout history been called Theophany. And believe it or not, it was actually, on the feast day of Epiphany, uh, it was actually the primary focus. Instead of the Magi, and I don't know, I didn't do enough digging to see when that changed, but we actually used to focus on, on the day of Epiphany, the feast day of Epiphany, on Jesus' baptism. And now we've moved it to the first Sunday of Epiphany. And one last thing I want to say, kind of by way of introduction, and I think it's really important. We always, every year, we conclude Epiphany with the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. And there's a real interesting tie between what happens there and what happens in Jesus' baptism. Three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, right, they saw him in blinding light standing between Moses and Elijah. As though Israel's whole history, Israel's whole identity, all the law and the prophets are on display right there. That's what's happening. And what happens in that moment? They heard a voice from heaven saying essentially the same thing that was said about Jesus at his baptism. This is my son in whom I am very pleased. But there was something added to the message at the Transfiguration, and it's in all three uh, Gospels, Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The voice from heaven concludes with this monumental exclamation, just rolling everything that the law and the prophets that Moses and Elijah had to say right up into Jesus. What are those words? Anybody know them? Listen to him. We live in a world that's just full of words. We, we are such listening beings, right? It's part of just who we are. We're not just listening for, we are listening to. Messages, directives, interruptions, advertising, God help us, desperate bids for attention and connection, constructs and formulas and innovations and explanations, late breaking. The world is full of just low-key promises 
and just high-volume proclamations about how we think reality works. But the gospel says that Jesus is the voice, the word, the logos, meaning the truth underlying everything. He embodied it, the way of understanding above and through the noise. He is the message that ultimately rings true because he is true if we will listen to him. And so to conclude just kind of a bit of an overview here, Epiphany reminds us that the gospel is really about connecting us to and uniting us with Jesus through the pain, through the confusion, and the brevity of life. Through the ignorance, through the lies, through the temptation, and the nonsense, through the relentless noise, listen to him. Pay attention, because it is to him that you belong, and it is through him that you belong to the divine, to God. So that's the message of Epiphany. It's an invitation to connect our lives ever more deeply to Jesus. So this morning, with the remainder of my time, we're, just, we're remembering Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan River. For those of you who've been in the faith for a while, and depending on your church background, there's a really good chance that this event in the life of Jesus was not emphasized that much. It probably didn't, didn't get much attention. But the ancient church, and much of the church, really the majority of the church throughout time, thought the baptism of Jesus was not only a very important event to commemorate every year, but it was and it is one of the most important details of Christian faith and witness, of how we understand ourselves. Right up there with Jesus' birth and crucifixion and his death and resurrection and his promised return. Vitally important because of what? It means for us and the way in which we belong to God. In other words, it's arguably foundational to our theology. It's fundamental to the way we make sense of who we are. And I'm absolutely convinced that's true, and, and that's really just what I want to unpack a bit today, just in case you don't know how great a gift it is that Jesus' body was baptized too. It wasn't just sort of a threshold a segue, or a stopgap. To put it another way, Jesus baptized the water with his body for us. And now John, we know, just looking at the context here, John has already been baptizing loads of people right there in the same spot, we imagine, in the Jordan, as a symbol of their repentance, which is a ritual cleansing from their sin. But it had a new twist, or a, sort of a dual kind of twist, they weren't administering it themselves, cleansing and saying, yes, I want to I, I be cleansed. But the prophet who was proclaiming the coming Messiah, he administers this baptism for them. They receive it with an emphasis on preparing them for the Messiah that he's proclaiming. It's not just getting cleansed ritually as you had in the past, but it's actually there is something coming. We are preparing ourselves for it. So when Jesus, whom John believes is that Messiah for whom they are preparing, and doesn't need his own cleansing or his preparation, when this Jesus shuffles out into the water in verse 13, it kind of breaks John's brain a little bit. So John protests, and he basically suggests, no, we need to switch places. <laughs> He's telling Jesus, you got a little wrong. We need to switch up here. But Jesus says, let it be so now. 
For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That is not just flowery, religious, biblical language. What could he mean? Well, we're about to find out as the gospel continues and as we think about it together. What does it mean? It means more than we might think. The way we've come to think about baptism itself, um, you know, it's just sort of in the water, no pun intended. Uh, In the last two centuries of rationalism and of growing individualism and of materialism that sort of makes everything kind of transactional, we've actually and arguably deviated from the way the church has taught or has thought about Jesus' own baptism and what it means to ours. Jesus' body in that water is not simply telling us that Jesus wanted to symbolically identify with sinners. It's more. So let me just try to make this as clear as possible. And you're going to have, uh, you're going to, have to join the church throughout time and warm up your mystery muscles. You know you have those? I know we're just, we act like we're brains on a stick and we have explanations for everything and an understanding for everything. Well, it's actually good news. You don't. And you have mystery muscles and you use them to embrace that which is bigger than you and better than what you can conceive. And so let's, let's get them working. So let me, let me make it clear. With his own holy body in the water, Jesus is creating, it's a new creation, a singular and sacred intersection of heaven and earth. A joining of time and eternity into which we are joined. He's creating and inaugurating a repeatable, as we find out, an experiential and even personal mediation of a giving of, a sharing of, an impartation of what the Father is giving to him in that moment. In the waters of baptism, throughout time, Jesus is giving that which has been given to him. Jesus is proclaiming over us and availing to us that which the Father makes available to him. This is what the church has believed. Not surprisingly, Jesus is embodying the fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 64. When the heavens open, are torn open, or the the, the desires for them to be torn open, to help the helpless, to cleanse the unclean, and for the Father, like a potter, to make us the work of his hands. In verse 16, the heavens open. The Spirit comes to rest on Jesus. Like a dove, a symbol of reconciliation of God's peace. And the Father proclaims his pleasure in him. And what I want you to understand is, what we understand insofar as we can about baptism is that everything that happens at the moment of Jesus' baptism, all that is said about him and given to him in the water becomes the inheritance he is giving to us. Not only his body on the cross for our sin, to make atonement for our sin, and to be for us what we could not be for ourselves, he is the body in the water, becoming the inheritance that he is giving to us. The all-righteousness that is necessary for us to return to God, to belong to God, to be adopted by God, to be reconciled to him as sons and daughters, it uniquely becomes ours. And how? through the water, through the mediation that Jesus taught his disciples to enact. Do that. 
That's what we mean when we call baptism a sacrament. It's an outward and visible sign that we participate in, mysteriously, of an inward spiritual grace, of God doing something and saying something. Irrevocable and powerful. This is why in Matthew 28, Jesus didn't follow the script to, you know, the rabbi script telling his disciples to just proclaim what he's done and to teach people what he's said, which is certainly part of it. What does he do? What else does he say? He commands them to do this, to baptize, to physically reenact for all of God's new people the very moment of heaven opening to them. The moment of the Spirit's peace and power descending upon them. Because guess what? We weren't there at Pentecost. And yet, the same power of Pentecost and the Spirit comes and is available to us. So the Spirit's peace and power descending upon them and the exclamation of the Father's pleasure in them. Before we have done anything righteous, in that baptism, we receive the promise. And I think an open heaven is a powerful picture of that. We receive the power, a peace power, in the Holy Spirit, and we receive the pleasure of the Father in us. Guess what? God doesn't only love you. He likes you. So, because all righteousness is already being fulfilled by Jesus, it's already there mysteriously and powerful for us. And yes, in the moment of our baptism. In his own seemingly unnecessary baptism, Jesus is baptizing the water for us with his body and making it in some sense a place of our adoption. And so you need to hear this today. And honestly, we probably need to hear it every day because the voices and the noise really are finely tuned to cause us to believe differently about ourselves. But you need to hear this. This righteousness, God's promise, God's power, and his pleasure actually become our starting place. Not where we're hoping to finally arrive after a lifetime of religious and spiritual earning and effort. Did you get that? It's our starting place. God's pleasure and God's power and God's promise. It's not what we're trying to achieve. You might say, oh yeah, well I know that. Do you know that? Do you live that? And it's true that his baptism is rich with symbolism, and of course it is, and we rehearse that, recall that in, in our baptismal liturgy, God's rescue through the water, invoking the flood and the Red Sea and the Jordan. But here's the thing. In the same way that the law and the prophets meet their climax in Jesus, what, what the Lord has to say in the fulfillment of the law, you know, meets in the authority of Jesus, at transfiguration, in the same way that Jesus on the cross willingly becomes the last and the best priest and becomes the last and the best sacrifice for sin, his baptism becomes a singular fulfillment of how the holy life required by a holy God, and how could he not? It actually becomes the holy life that he provides for us, not that we provide for ourselves, that we hear about and that we value and then we try to achieve, but that he provides it from the jump. Salvation is the work of his hands, not ours. And a lot of us will go out on Monday and probably in some small ways, I will go out trying to save myself tomorrow. 
And it might keep me from the joy of relying upon what God has provided. Instead, I find myself striving in a cycle of shame, trying to prove that what God has done for me, I am worthy of it. You cannot do that. So that's why we have this moment in time. Though it doesn't change anything that Jesus has provided, there is a chance, a good chance, as I said, that you're not thinking of your baptism the way that Jesus was and is thinking of your baptism. So today's an opportunity for us to align it. And this sort of makes me think of an interview that I heard recently with the world debate champion, uh, a guy named Bo Seo. He said this, a bad argument is you and me against each other. And you might have had one of those on the way to church this morning. Not with me, but between two of you. A good argument is you and me against the problem. A good argument is you and me against a problem. Too often, what does this have to do with it? You know, too often we live as though the Christian life, our relationship with God is kind of like a negotiation or an argument between God and us, God against us, and, you know, uh, unless and until we're getting it right. We might also imagine it's us against God because of our un- ongoing sin and the difficulty of change and our lack of understanding. But what our baptism actually tells us is that it's now God and us against the problem. The problem of sin and death that invades our world and our lives. It doesn't mean that we don't have culpability and agency, but what it means is actually we have everything we need to believe and to follow God in the power of the Spirit and in the peace to deal with the world as it really is. Because we've been initiated into the promise of heaven, the Spirit's power of peace and the unearned pleasure of the Father are ours. Everything we do as a result of these gifts is a response. It's just that, to grace. Everything we do will be nothing short of actually, and this is the Christian life, hear me, it will be harnessing and instrumentalizing the promise of an open heaven, the Spirit's presence and power, and the Father's pleasure. Does that make sense? The grace that is given to us in baptism is just part of why the church has always baptized even our little ones. And I don't have to do an infant baptism commercial this morning because we're Anglicans. Guess what, right? You may not necessarily follow along with that that tradition, but what informs that is so much. Not just tradition, but the recognition that baptism is a starting point in His grace just by being born to faithful parents who know what God's desire is for them and what Jesus has provided. They will never and you will never know enough or believe well enough to make baptism make sense for you. God makes baptism make sense for you. Baptism becomes not something our children must do, but that has been done for them in the witness of the church and in the wisdom of God. For them, there is an open heaven. I believe that for my children. For my children, there is a peaceful power. And for them, too, there is a relentless, divine pleasure in my children. In you, it's unearned. It's all grace. So the question simply becomes for them and for us, will they, will we want what they've been given? And they'll have a moment. And man, we have our moments. Will they, will we embrace this? Will they desire to continue in it? And certainly options abound. 
Do they want to live their lives in the reality of an open heaven, making sense of the present and the future in that way? Or will they entrust their future and their present to some other kind of transcendent hope? The answer is yes. It's one or the other. Will we? Will they try to live with a different kind of power and resilience, hopefully something that will provide some kind of peace to face the world as it really is? Will they embrace the pleasure of God in them? It says that's who they are. That they're anchored in his love that defines their worth. Or will they seek it elsewhere? Options abound. Settling for what they can acquire or accomplish in what they look like or can do. Or God help us in the fleeting praise of other people. Our baptism, friends, anchors our hope not in the wavering state of our understanding or our confidence. Because both of those waver in my life. I don't know about you. But it anchors us in the fact of the presence and the power and the pleasure of God. The irrevocable fact of our history. The gift of union with God, which creates a kind of a through line amid the unholy and fragmenting realities of life. Yes, all that stuff you're going through. You have a place in history where you've been united with Christ. It can't unhappen, and that's why it happens. And hopefully our confidence in these gifts will hold that line in our hearts, and I know that that can be really difficult through unpredictability and pain, ups and downs. But we're meant to share this as one baptized family. That's why we have one Lord and one faith and one baptism. Because the once and done fact of our union with Jesus through baptism, it springs eternal even through the arid ground of our circumstances, or as I said, our understanding, our perspective, our experience. When we remember our baptism, we don't just remember the message it conveys. We get to remember the moment. And I don't mean we recall it to memory because some of you were bald, grumpy babies in little white suits and outfits who were none the wiser. What do I mean? I mean we remember that before we did anything, Jesus did everything and because he did we could and because he did we can and that's how grace works and that's how Christianity works and there's no other kind not really so if you've forgotten what Jesus has given you today's a great day to remember it's a great day to remember his baptism and to remember ours and to remember that they belong together and that the gifts that, he, that were wrought even before Jesus went to the cross are available to us. Heaven is still open. You might not feel that way. The Spirit is still ours and the Father's pleasure in Jesus is His pleasure in you. And whatever that shame is, whatever that denial is, whatever that confusion maybe that you have, is right now. I just want you to know God not only loves you, He likes you. He's pleased with you. And not because of what you've done, but because there is and was a body in the water for us. Do you believe it? Amen. Lord, help us. We're so inordinately focused on our own 
what's going on right now, and it's hard not to be. And in many ways, you've made us like that. But Lord, we pray that you help us, that our hearts would have the through line of your baptism and our baptism meeting at that intersection of heaven and earth, that we would know who we are, and it would inform everything about us, even the hardest things, the, the, the molar-grinding realities that we face and trying to fully live into who you've made us to be and who you're making us to be. Lord, help us, mold us, And help us to just know, above all things, how much you love us and like us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.